Hallelujah. Father, in this day, when we turn our calendars, we are compelled to remember your faithfulness to us. As we have prayed for things that we do not deserve, and if you, as you have answered those prayers through the course of this last year, we recognize that your grace and mercy has been shed abroad in our lives in more ways than we can mark. As we look upon our own salvation, we recall, Lord, the work of Christ paid to secure our eternal life. And for that reason, we confess with this song, all glory be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we look upon this last year and we see how you have guided, directed, and protected, and provided for us, we also confess that you have supplied not only the bread of life eternal, but our daily bread. And for this, we confess with this song, all glory be to Christ. And Father, as we have opened the scriptures during this Advent season to behold in the pages of the text, times when the heavens were open to reveal the purposes of God and the angels of your will, emissaries and messengers, ascending and descending through the work of Christ to accomplish redemption and to open the eyes of the blind, we pray that you would open our eyes this day as well. As we open your scriptures, would you open our hearts? And as we open the scriptures and through the proclamation of the same, may we see the glories of Christ revealed there. And as we see them, we pray that conviction would stir our hearts to turn from our sin and to turn to Christ. For the lost, that they would find that in Jesus, their Savior and Lord, their once for all sacrifice will forever secure their eternal life as they repent and believe. For the believer that we might walk in a way more consistent with our call, seeking to be obedient and glorifying Jesus, who laid down his own life to save us. Father, in these things we pray that you would be glorified, and that fruit following this message would serve to magnify the name of Jesus as we seek this year to go tell it on the mountain that you lead us to, our friends, our family, and whoever we might have opportunity to share the love and the truth of Christ, we pray that we would be faithful to do so as we are encouraged and equipped by your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, what a great occasion to thank the Lord for his faithfulness, to glorify him for giving us a new year, for celebrating his many blessings to us in the last 12 months. And even though it might just be a cultural marker, it is ne nevertheless, I believe, biblical to recognize periodically, regularly, the faithfulness of the Lord, to remind our souls that we are entirely dependent on Him. And in Him, we have our sufficiency, both for our day-to-day -day needs and for our forever secured eternal life through Jesus Christ and His gospel. Today, the first Sunday of the month and of the year, let us turn in our series to the book of Jude and consider three verses today. If you have your Bible with, turn with me to Jude, and we'll consider today verses 9 through 11. The title of this morning's message is a question or a statement, I suppose, depending on how you phrase it, what holiness demands. What does holiness demand? Holiness meaning the perfection, the set-apartness, if you will, all the character, the nature, the power, and the glory that makes God who He is. This is a summed up in that term, holiness. It is that otherness, that exclusivity, that beauty, that power, that glory, that majesty of the King of kings and Lord of lords. What sets Him apart 
What kind of response does that holiness demand? Well, Jude considers this question, and he also points out the shortfalls and those who fall short of the glory of God and those who are, in fact, enemies of the church because they have not been sufficiently made aware of the holiness of God and therefore submitted to Christ in worship, in deference, and in reverence, and therefore continue to pursue their own desires. And so we find in the context of Jude's epistle, he really divides all of humanity, not just his audience, into two camps. Those who continue to serve self as they have not met Christ yet, and then the second camp of humanity, those who have realized their sin, repented, and trust Christ, have been bowed low before the holiness and righteousness of an almighty God, and then sought his means of provision for their salvation, namely the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So this is kind of the greater context of today's message, under that title, What Holiness Demands. The aim of this morning's sermon is to proclaim the holiness of God in light of his words of warning. Jude includes many words of warning, although his epistle is not long by word count. His references and associations are deep and profound indeed, and so we'll seek to draw from those today. So with your heart and your Bible open as you're able, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? And listen as the word of God is proclaimed to you, Jude, three verses, nine through 11. Here are the holy scriptures. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. This is the word of God. You may be seated. For today's message, let me introduce our study today by two recall points. The first is the final verse of Jude's great epistle, and this the closing of his glorious doxology. 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What I have submitted for us as an organizing theme for this, uh, for this book of the Bible is that Christians are called, and this is the purpose for Jude's writing we see in the beginning, Christians are called to contend for the faith, that is to defend the truth and the gospel, to take a stand for righteousness and for what God has revealed, through his word correctly and rightly understood and divided. Christians are called to contend for the faith by discerning and opposing anything that denies the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the opening and closing appeal of the book. In the opening, in verse 2 or 3, Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... That would be what we are contending for, in part. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And what I have suggested is one judge of what is not the faith is that which falls short of the dominion, authority, the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ, which Jude so poetically and gloriously exclaims in the final verse. 
So in this way, we, as the church, heeding this counsel today, even as the church heard it 2,000 years ago, will grow in our obedience to guard the gospel and that was once and for all delivered to the true church according to the message of the apostles throughout the New Testament, which interpreted the, and which recorded and interpreted the fulfillment of that gospel proclaimed from days of old through the prophets, the writings, and all of the Old Testament as well. That would be the whole counsel of God. So to appreciate the full impact of Jude's letter, let me go one step further in introducing this message. Not only are we seeking to grow in our ability to contend for the faith by using the dominion, authority, glory, and majesty of Jesus as our standard or benchmark by which to judge all claims, but we are to what we, I suggest, furthermore, can appreciate more fully the impact of Jude's letter when we make it our goal to familiarize ourselves with his many references. Jude uses three references which we'll focus our outline on today: Cain, Korah, and Balaam. And those three names may not be as familiar to us as they should. I think Jude presupposes a familiarity in his audience with the background of what those three characters represent. So my goal in preaching today in part is to brush up on those and we'll touch upon some references from the Old Testament to learn what exactly is Cain's way. What does Jude mean by Balaam's error? And what was Korah's rebellion? So again, to appreciate the full impact of Jude's letter, it should be our goal to have his references to prior revelation as fresh in our mind as we read them, as they were in his mind when he wrote them, if that were possible. And the goal, uh, this goal describes our purpose for background references throughout our messages on Jude. Text uh, Today, Jude references these three archetypes, archetypes of wickedness which characterize the heart and intentions of the church's enemies. That is to say, the church's enemies are like Cain, the enemies of Christ's church, the enemies of the gospel are like Balaam, and they're also like Korah. So these three serve as illustrations, contrasting the faithfulness characterized by a positive example in verse 9, Michael the archangel, with the negative, those who stand against Christ and his word, again, the church's enemies. Let's look at verse 9 quickly. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So what Jude is telling us is we have a call to contend for the faith. But we have a good example of one who contended, one who embraced conflict with godliness and with reference to what holiness demands. And that example that Jude gives us in verse 9 is of the archangel Michael. This is kind of an interesting reference. Jude illustrates the presumption of blasphemy by a concept or rhetorical device sometimes called citing the minimal case. So uh, Jude is making an argument and he's citing the minimal case. And let me explain. He's referencing spiritual conflict occurring behind the scenes of Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6. So if you want to study that on your own time, in Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6, there is an account of a supernatural burial of Moses. Uh, no one knew where Moses was buried because God himself uh, placed the body where he will uh, before, prior to the Israelites entering into the promised land. 
But there was something going on behind the scenes. There was conflict between the devil himself and Michael the archangel at that time. There's a bit of mystery here. We're not sure exactly to what Jude refers, but in heaven one day, I'm sure we'll get more of the story. But suffice it to say, this conflict was one that Michael, though he was a greatest, one of the greater angels, if you will, an archangel, he did not rely on his own power and authority in that conflict, but instead he deferred to the authority of God. Jude points out, in summary, not even the highest of angels, Michael the archangel, was willing to presumptuously assume authority of himself to condemn the most wicked of creatures, the devil himself. But instead, he deferred to the will and power of God in pronouncing judgment on his enemy. So Michael's testimony, the archangel, is as follows. It illustrates, instructs by illustrating us what holiness demands. Holiness demands deference, so deferring to the authority of the Lord. What is deference? Well, it's the heart exhibited by John the Baptist when he said, I must decrease, he must increase. I am nothing, I am not worthy of unstrapping the sandals of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even though Jesus himself affirmed that John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets prior to him, nevertheless, John the Baptist was a good example, like Michael, of, of understanding and walking in what holiness demands. No false pretenses that there's anything in and of ourselves that renders us uh, valuable uh, to the Lord or in, uh, uh, in, in so much as our righteousness is ha we have anything to show in our own righteousness. No, that which is valuable or presentable uh, is only what God has granted to us by his mercy and grace, if you will. So we see this heart of deference, also reverence to hold in high esteem and to take uh, in, in high respect the Lord and then to worship, to give us him our service and obedience and submission to bow before him in absolute, uh, absolute yes, sir, and no, sir, depending on his law. So here's the argument. If Gabriel, this holy creature, you know, that uh, inhabits the realms of glory, an unfallen being, and this greatest of the angels, if he did not presume his own power, righteousness, authority, but instead said to the devil himself, the Lord rebuke you, then how much more ought we defer and not trust in anything of ourselves by way of authority or righteousness or holiness, but to simply uh, live and act according to the word of God. So that's what we see here in Jude's argument inciting the minimal case. If it was true that God is so holy that he demands the deference, the reverence, the worship and submission of even the angels, then the argument is, how much more ought we to revere him? On that night of Christmas, when the hosts of heaven obeyed the Lord implicitly, and upon his command, the heavens were open, and those heavenly hosts came down and proclaimed the news of a savior, the shepherds recognized that their example uh, was something that they should follow. And so what did they do? They did the same. They proclaimed the news of Christ come. Again, the argument was illustrated in their case. If this is a message worthy of the angels, then how much more ought we be faithful to proclaim the good news of a Savior who has come? So Michael's testimony, the angel, illustrates 
that demands of holiness in this way. And why is this the case? It is the case, again, because the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority belong to Christ alone. Christ alone. There is no glory, majesty, dominion, or authority, even in the angels, worthy of our deference, reverence, worship, and submission. No, exclusively and only, even the angels worship and defer to the sovereign, the Savior, the King of kings, who is majestic and powerful, who is worthy of our veneration and praise. His glory, majesty, dominion, and authority are both now and forever displayed in the gospel and in his kingdom coming and in his rule even this day. And so this is what Jude wants the church to know. And also it is this attitude that separates true believers from enemies of the church. In sharp contrast to verse 9, we have verse 10. But these people, so you see there he's drawing a distinction. On the one hand, you have the reverence as characterized by Michael the archangel. On the other hand, you have the enemies of the gospel. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So, as he continues to make his case, Jude delineates the knowledge of the rebellious. This could be the false teachers, any enemies of Christ and his church, the unbelieving, the wicked, the world. On the one hand, they betray great ignorance, those who are not in Christ, by their blasphemy, as they do what? Maybe just ignore, maybe dismiss, reject, twist, misrepresent Christ and his gospel. Those who those who failed to heed and then subsequently herald the glories of Christ come and hit and the miracle of their own salvation, they betray great ignorance, mortal ignorance, a misunderstanding. The lack of knowledge of the gospel uh, is so great that they fail to recognize the glory, majesty, the authority and the power and dominion of Jesus Christ. Is there any excuse for this? The scriptures tell us, of course, there is not. But on the other hand, they do understand something. So their knowledge is based on what they instinctively uh, pursue in the flesh. So instead of the most powerful, profound, and freeing, and glorious knowledge, the truth of the gospel, and understanding the world, and the word, according to the word of God, and its author, its creator, and savior, instead, they are compelled and obsessed by their and their activities are, are calibrated to pursue their own appetites, motivated entirely by their fleshly, self-worshipping, self-centered, religiously narcissistic life and lifestyle, and wicked and corrupt heart. So without any reference to higher authority, their God is the flesh themselves, their whims. And this, Jude says, barring repentance, will be the death of them. And if we had not repented, if you're a believer in this room and turned to Christ, it would have been the death, the eternal death and judgment of us. This is the kind of behavior that is, that is akin to unreasoning animals, or in other places the scriptures say irrational beasts. I gave you my favorite, one of my favorite quotes, I think last Sunday or the Sunday before, from J.C. Ryle, surely there are none so mad as those who are content to live, unprepared to die. Surely there are none so mad as those who are content to live, unprepared to die. We are not beasts. We are made in the image of God. We are not animals. God, we are the crown of God's creation. 
But the travesty of the fall is that we act with short-sighted thinking, blind to the most obvious and the most profound of truths in our sin. And in this way, until the Lord opens our eyes, resurrects our dead hearts, and grants unto us salvation, until we are born again, we act like irrational beasts and unreasoning animals. And what sets us free from this condition? Well, it's the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of His Word, the Holy Spirit through the awakening of the heart to the knowledge of our sin and the reality of a Savior that transforms us into a different kind of creature entirely. When we are born again and by the power of His hand, takes us from the camp of the wicked and the, rep and the uh, damned and so forth into the camp of those who are the saints and the beloved who now contend for that same faith. So this is the either-or uh, context that Jude is written in. Now, to illustrate even further the difference between verses 9 and 10, Jude summons three cautionary tales. So the remainder of today's message will explore the context of verse 11. Verse 11 again, Woe to them! So woe to those who, like unreasoning animals, blaspheme what they don't understand and only pursue what they do, namely their fleshly appetites and instincts. Woe to them! Verse 11, For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So by, in verse 11, these three cautionary tales or kids, another way to describe that would be warning stories. So there are three warning stories in the Bible. One involves Cain, one involves Balaam, one involves Korah. And let's touch on those today. And as we do so, let us behold the gravity of submission to Christ. Or let us behold what holiness demands given these three cautionary tales. These three warning stories are about individuals and people who did not take seriously the Lord and His revelation, did not take seriously the covenant, lived according to themselves rather than His revealed truth of His Word. And when they put themselves above His Word, there was huge consequences. So let's go to the first warning story in Genesis chapter 4. So the first cautionary tale is Cain's way. Turn to Genesis 4 and let us refresh our memory along the lines of the lesson from the Old Testament scriptures of one of the first recorded sins after the fall. Genesis 4, to refresh our memory and to bring us up to speed again in the story of Adam and Eve and then their first two sons, Cain and Abel, we read verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. In those first five verses, what we find is that the holiness of God is illustrated in the difference between these two sacrifices, and I would go on to say, as represented the heart of each of the offerers, if you will. There is a, all the difference in the world between the offering of Cain and the offering of Abel. The rest of the scriptures testify as to the intrinsic difference. What was the nature of Cain's sacrifice? What was the nature of Abel's? 
Or perhaps you'll recall some associations you might have heard in prior messages. Abel offered a sacrifice of an animal, a death in the place of another. He offered of the unblemished and the first fruits, if you will, of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So it was the offering of the best, and it was an offering of blood, and it was the offering of another, a substitute. A creature died in the place of Abel. Here is prototypical shades of the gospel. These are the types and shadows of old that held forth hope that there would be a lamb of God to come. And Abel offered an animal sacrifice in faith that by this act of worship, God might recognize his need for a savior and by a future Messiah who would die in his place and crush the serpent's head, the promise given to his parents through condemnation of the serpent in the prior chapter 315, there would be hope of salvation. But then there was a different kind of offering. And this offering more likely represented what Cain could accomplish. He, a keeper of the ground, brought this fruit. And as the story unfolds, we see that their hearts were quite different as well. The real difference was the heart of Cain versus the heart of Abel. Abel becomes the first martyr because the heart of, the Cain, of Cain was wicked. He so resented the holiness of the Lord that he took out his anger on his own brother and became the world's first murderer. What is Cain's way? Cain resents holy discrimination. Cain rep, uh, resents the fact that God in his righteousness says some things are not acceptable and some things are. Cain's heart is that, nope, this is my thing, my way, and I resent the fact that any authority over me would say that my sacrifice is not sufficient. No, this is my way. I'm going to do it as I will, as I wish, and I hate the idea that God would discriminate, that he would show favor to my brother and not to me. That's not fair. How many times have you heard that similar attitude? Maybe you displayed it yourself before you came humbly in submission to Christ. No one submits to Christ without acknowledging, let me add, that his, the discriminating character of His holiness. God in His righteousness reserves the right and has, and, and has absolutely established the, the terms of righteousness and wickedness. And though we live in a society that would like to rearrange ethical norms and like to erase the idea of absolutes and says that ultimately everybody has the right to define for themselves who they are and what they ought to do. What is that? That is the way of Cain. And it will never stand on the day of reckoning. And there is a day of reckoning coming. Holiness, by definition, is a standard that discriminates between that which is disordered and that which is orderly, that which is sinful, that which is righteous, that which is worthy of judgment, and that which is in God's favor. And the way of Cain did not submit to Christ, did not submit to the Word of God, but instead submitted to his own emotions. So what is the way of Cain? It's resenting holy discrimination and it's radical subjectivism. It's radical emotionalism, radical self-centeredness, selfishness, autonomy, Fancy words, they all mean the same thing. We see this as the story continues to unfold. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? Notice, this is the grace and mercy of the Lord speaking directly to this man. And does he, does he pause and consider with deference, reverence, worship, and submission that Yahweh, the Creator, 
the one who holds out hope for the fallen race, is speaking directly to him, or is he only concerned about himself? The second is the case. If you do well, the Lord says, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you. You must rule over it. The gospel has just been illustrated, you know, implied here is this this statement. The gospel has just been illustrated and pictured in the offering that your brother has offered. It was a lamb, it was an animal in substitute. It was not intrinsic to him. Why don't you ask the most important question, not it or why are you treating me unfairly, but rather, what is it about this sacrifice that you're pleased with, O Lord? And how have I fallen short of your will? Instead of this, though, Cain continues in his radical subjectivism, and he leans on or he trusts in or he makes decisions on his emotions rather than the very word of God. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and uh, his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. The way of Cain is to resent the holy discrimination of the Lord. It's to instead and trade for that radical subjectivism, his preferences, his identity, his emotions, his self-interest, his sin, his desires. They took precedent over the very word of God. The very word of God which if Cain was in the right frame of mind, you would understand what demands in its holiness, deference, reverence, worship, and submission. But in radical rebellion, following the God of his own heart, he committed the first murder and slayed his brother. Furthermore, the way of Cain finally is defined or is characterized by despising God's mercy. It would have been right for God to kill Cain on the spot, However, God extends mercy to him yet again. Cain said to, in verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will, not, finds me will kill me. Has Cain's heart changed? No, it has not. How do we know? He deserved death. The wages of sin is death. On the day you eat this fruit, you will die, was a message to his parents. And you have committed a sin. Right now, red-handed, killing your brother, an innocent, shedding innocent blood. As we see see the scriptures unfold, and the perfect wisdom and righteousness of the Lord, proportional justice is demanded. For man's life, I require a life. A very easy concept to understand. If one was not radically governed by self-centeredness, I should set the terms of righteousness. I am God. He would recognize he deserved to die. And it would be just and right for God to kill him on the spot. What does Cain say? Your punishment is unfair. Unfair? Fails to recognize the mercy and grace of God. Those in the hearing of this message, we don't deserve another breath. We have broken covenant with God and we are sinners. We have fallen short of his glory and the cosmic treason we have committed against the holy and the righteous and the pure and the true is such that we don't deserve another breath. 
Yet God is faithful to give us one after the other after the other. We're celebrating a year of his faithfulness to us today as we turn the calendar page. Why is this that we are here today? Is it because we are greater deserving of anything? No, it's because of the pure mercy and grace of God. And nowhere is that mercy more greatly illustrated and pictured than in these elements here today, which represent another sacrifice, which made that mercy and grace not only provisionally a reality like Cain experienced for a time, but an ultimate reality, extending that mercy and grace to us unto eternity. Sin must be atoned for. God is righteous. His holiness is discriminating. Someone must die. There is justice. There is wrath that must be satisfied. And that mercy and that grace is purchased at the death, the cost of another. Abel's sacrifice pictured a sacrifice to come. Cain was blind, but Abel would be vindicated one day. We go on further to read verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And even in the ambitions of this rebel, we see him continuing to defy the authority of the Lord. Oh, you condemn me to be a wanderer? Guess what I'm going to do? Build a city. This is that radical subjectivism. This is that despising of God's mercy. This is that heart of rebellion that characterizes Cain's way. Which are we today? Are we able, depending on the sacrifice of another, for grace and mercy we don't deserve? Or are we, Cain, complaining against the sovereign because we don't think that the terms of his righteousness are fair? And we would like to have it differently, thank you. Until it changes, I'm going to register my objection and my protest with God Almighty. We may not think of it that, it that way, but that's certainly what is, that certainly is the case. We learn this from the cautionary tales of Scripture Gravity of submission to Christ is magnified to our souls when we see it illustrated by these warning stories, by these cautionary tales. First of all, Cain's way. Secondly, Balaam's error. Turn with me to Numbers 23. So we've gleaned some context as to Cain's way. What was Balaam's error and who was he? Well, as you recall, just to set the stage, there was an enemy king to the Israelites as they traveled in Exodus from Egypt to the promised land named Balak. And Balak was nervous about the threat that these wandering people represented. They were growing more and more numerous, and he was worried about his porous borders. And so he summoned a soothsayer or somebody that he thought might have some supernatural authority to call down a curse on his enemies. This man was Balaam. So Balaam came ready for a handsome payment as his services were procured to pronounce curse on the Israelites, but something goes horribly wrong according to these guys' plan, but amazingly right according to the sovereignty of God. And so we pick up on this in Numbers 23. Balaam said to Balak, build for me seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said. So what's going on here? Well, the king has asked for this uh, soothsayer dude to curse his enemies and so here we're going to see his first discourse in verse 6. He returned to him, and behold, he had all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offerings. Okay, this is the enemy nation, Moab. So we have Moab versus the Israelites. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, so here's discourse 1. From Aram, Balak brought me, the king Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? 
How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Balak slaps his forehead. What are you saying? You're acknowledging the power and the influence and the superiority of this people. I want you to condemn them. But you're saying that you want to be counted with them so that God might show you the same kind of favor he's showing them. Yes, we've heard of their stories of crossing the Red Sea and how their God fed them in the wilderness. They are a threat to us. I hired you to curse them. What are you saying? Well, of course, Balaam goes on to say, I cannot speak but what the Lord has sovereignly moved me to say, basically. And thus, the next time he brings up discourse number two, it's just more of the same. Verse 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? Will he not fulfill it? Behold, I receive a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not held misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no div divination against Israel. Hey, my hands are tied. I'm interjecting now. I can't help it. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God, what has God wrought? What has God done? Behold the people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the it tell it does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. I got news for you, King of Moab. It's far more likely that you'll be overrun and you'll become the prey of this nation than vice versa. I don't know what to tell you. Anyways, it goes on like this, as you recall. It's a quite lengthy set of discourses. Depending on how you count them, there's four of them, and then the last there's like three addendums where multiple nations, Balaam says are going to become victims of this uh, wandering people. Now, my point in bringing this up is this. What is Balaam's error? Well, so far, it hasn't been in what he said. But in Balaam's heart, we see there is a real problem. But that doesn't really come up until later. In the meantime, what Balaam is doing in pronouncing these true judgments, as the Lord sovereignly overrides his tongue, is building a case of culpability against himself. He knows, and there is no excuse, that the Lord has blessed this people. And this people represent a relationship of favor with the Lord Almighty. The stupidest thing and the most wicked thing you could possibly do would be to conspire against the Creator and the Sovereign and the Savior. And, you know, in his messages, he continues along these lines. And with each disclosure, he increases his culpability if he were to conspire against these people. However, because he betrays the heart of a rebel, because his heart was not awakened to the truth of this God that he needed to be his own savior, uh, we find him compromised in the end. So this culpability increases if he were to turn on this people. And then there is a corruption that's documented in chapter 25. Things do go horribly wrong. Verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So they weren't able to overrun them with the sword, but now the Israelites are compromising them with 
compromising themselves with immorality with this people. So these, the Moabites, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. A very sophisticated strategy was embarked upon by the people of Moab. They realized after the prophecies of Balaam that there was, they had no chance of defeating Israel in battle. So they changed their tactics. They went from a physical battle by sword to a spiritual battle, and they sent out their women to uh, entice and to seduce the men and so forth. And it worked. These people were tempted to break covenant with their God. The Israelites were tempted by the Moabites to break covenant with their God, and now they were being killed. But the Moabites didn't even need to lift the sword. It was God himself who was slaughtering his people for their sin. Isn't this something? So Balaam's error, what was it? So far we've seen culpability documented, and now we've seen the corruption that happened with the people. By the way, here's an application point for you. Sins of dissipation break down the self-government of a people and make them vulnerable to being overrun. In other words, we pride ourselves, or just to bring it closer to home, we pride ourselves as having a very strong war machine, America does. There's no way that it's just beyond absurd to think that any enemy in this world could overrun our borders. After all, we have like 25 more aircraft carriers than the next guy, whatever the number is. We boast a fighting force, and I mean, I think our, our budget for defense is like, I don't know how many times, like 10 times that of the next largest nation in the world. But the enemy, nevertheless, is having its way with us in our culture. But how is he doing it? Compromising us from the inside. I mean, if you send immoral influences into people, it makes them vulnerable to attack. It breaks down the social order, and they become their own worst enemies, and the society collapses from within. There's no such thing as a strong society without strong families. And there's no such thing as strong families when immorality is rampant. And pornography serves this purpose, by the way. It's a weapon of mass moral destruction that renders a people uh, vulnerable to attack. It breaks down their strength and their resolve. It's a sin of dissipation that screws up the social order of a nation and causes them to implode from within. And this and many other examples of immorality that is championed and celebrated and indulged in our character, there's a real lesson to learn from Balaam's error for us as a nation. Sure, China may not overrun us tomorrow, but the Trojan horse of our fleshly desires as a people will likely pull the means of destruction right through the gate without Russia firing a shot across our borders. How do we protect against this? Well, it's a war that takes place in the heart. You must turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ and recognizing, recognize the discriminating, discriminating character of his holiness. 
You must contend for the faith, church, and stand against reordering morals and ethics and standards of righteousness in the way and the means and the whims of the cultural errors and blasphemies and corruptions and perversions of our day and take a stand. Then and only then can you be assured of the blessing and endurance of a strong society and the future sustainability of a people and its families and its character and its culture and so forth. And so there's a lesson here. So finally, in, verse, in chapter 31 of Numbers, we see finally a disclosure of Balaam's error. Here we get right down to it. The question is, why did Balaam become a byword for false prophets through the scriptures? It wasn't really what he said in his discourses, so what was it? Well, the insidious conspiracy that Balaam advised Balak, the Moabite king, to embark upon is recorded by Moses in chapter 31. Moses said to them, verse 15, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. Do you see here? Now we see Balaam's error exposed. So Balaam after his discourses failed to give the message the king preferred, he pulled, you know, hey, come over here, Balak. He pulled him aside and says, you know what, this isn't going to work. But I have a better idea. Send out your women, seduce the men, um, set up your altars on the perimeter and show how amazing and awesome and put big smiles on your face as you enjoy your feasting and indulgence among your idols. And if they begin to intermingle and begin to make a covenant with you through marriage, it will compromise their relationship with their God. And if I know their God, he will take out his sword against them. and You won't have to lift a finger. This was the advice. This was the cabinet, if you will, of the king of Moab. And this was the conspiracy and the counsel that he was given, and it worked. It worked to destroy the moral character and to overrun the people and to wreak a great day of reckoning. Thousands and thousands were killed. Uh, if not by sword, by those who took out as agents of God's justice, his wrath upon the people, then by plague for the rest. Not everybody, but a huge number. This was Balaam's error. Balaam was an insidious conspirator. He was a wicked uh, individual who used his conniving intelligence to wreak great havoc among God's people. And thus, he has become a byword. Anybody who uh, lives and acts and interacts according to the ideas of Balaam will purposely sow seeds of immorality and, uh, in and amongst the people and the convictions in order to accomplish a reordering of things the way that he would prefer. And this is the kind of thing the enemies of Christ's church will do, and it's the kind of thing that we need to watch out for. Beware of any attempt under so-called Christian terms, to, re, to adjust or to reconstruct or to reconfigure or redefine things like marriage or sexual identity. These are areas in our life, uh, in our uh, time in which we live, where Balaam's error is as prevalent now as it was. If you want to reduce and neuter the potency of the church, if you want to remove her as an active force to proclaim uh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you compromise her on these uh, issues, and pretty soon the testimony of Christ is greatly reduced and his enemies celebrate, at least in the meantime. 
This is Balaam's error. So beware. The gravity of submission to Christ is greatly magnified when we consider these warning stories, these cautionary tales. And let us close with a final one. This would be Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16. As you're turning to Numbers 16, let me remind you of our key verse, Jude 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. By the way, we assume that Balaam was handsomely paid. And uh, that was probably his motive. That's what Jude says, in fact, that, okay, you know, my discourse is I can't but speak what God has said, but here's this alternate means. And so for the promise of personal gain in the short term, Balaam sold his soul, conspired against the people of God, and that thus has become a byword for a false teaching and rebellion ever since. Numbers 16, we have record of Korah's rebellion. Verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, and the sons of Eliab, and, of, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with the number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. Korah's rebellion. First of all, it's marked by corrupting influence. Here there's a coordinated attempt to overthrow God's divinely anointed and instituted authority. Moses was anointed by the Lord, and obviously so, for leading the people of God. Do you see what the evidence of God's glory and his authority in the service and office of Moses was obvious and undeniable. Anytime you have a guy that is a picture of Jesus to come, shining with the reflective glory of the Lord so much that it freaks you out unless there's a veil over the face, you better follow that guy and you better listen to the word of God and you better heed those writings written down in those tablets that were inscribed by the very finger of God on that Mount Sinai on the day when the earth shook, the trumpets blasted, and a firestorm collapsed upon you such that if anyone besides his anointed servant touched the mountain would instantly die, you better listen to him. And now in blatant rebellion against the anointed servant of the Lord, gaining confidence by those who agree with them, they decide to stage a little coup and say, you've gone too far. It's not fair. You're taking undue authority. This spells trouble. This is Korah's rebellion. Submission to Jesus Christ always involves humility. Children, listen to me. You are called to follow your parents insofar as they nurture and admonish you in the word of God and in the Lord. Your parents have the commission, like Moses, to lead you in the knowledge of the truth. And when they give you instructions to follow God's word, and if they disciple you and give you things to do in your school, in your chores, and if they correct you, if you commit sins against your siblings and so forth, you are called to listen, to heed, and to obey. You're not obeying your parents first and foremost, but you are obeying them inasmuch as they are delegates of God's authority. God has given your parents the special job to teach you his rules. Just like God gave Moses the special job to teach his people his rules. So you can get together with society or with your friends and, and say, I don't need to listen to the authority in my life, 
But if you do so, you join the heart of Korah's rebellion. Adults in the room, same thing. None of us is immune to the hierarchy of God's natural order. When the word of God is proclaimed in our hearing with authority and according to the way, rightly divided according to his purposes written, we are now duty-bound to submit to Jesus Christ and to live, in, live accordingly. There are things in our lives that don't measure up to the standards that God has laid out in his scripture. And we are called to heed the proclamation of his word as one instance. When we read it, we hear it proclaimed and to change our lives accordingly. We may come up with a reason, you know, in a committee of the un, of a committee of the disaffected and disillusioned to oppose it. But if we do so, and the strength of our rebellion is just gained by others agreeing with us, we could be falling into the error of Korah's rebellion. And so this corrupting influence, seeking for themselves confidence to oppose the Lord's anointed by a majority of those around them, they took a step, they got up the courage, and they challenged this guy to his face. Who are you to tell us what to do? Is this not in a broader picture what society is doing? You know, so much of society draws on the agreement of their neighbors and the major media influencers and outlets and mediums and forums and whatever we read in the news and so forth and what you know, comes to us by way of academia, entertainment and politics and policy. And we think, oh, this unified voice of culture is the new authority now. And Americans in so many cases live like that. But the will of the rebellious majority never trumps the unchangeable truth of God's Ten Commandments. And in your rebellion as a society, if you seek to overthrow them, there will be hell to pay. We see that in our story here. So you go on from this you know, corrupting influence to rejecting God's terms of holiness. And we see this in verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses. You have gone too far. <clears throat> and they say this. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. Ah, oh, you're not so special. Jesus Christ isn't that special. There's a lot of wise individuals. I draw a lot of inspiration from a lot of sources. You know, that would be the modern equivalent of denying the, the particular office of the Holy One, so to speak. Oh, uh, you've gone too far. All in the congregation are holy. You know, who are you to judge? Uh, you know, everybody is equally righteous and authoritative. Every one of them. The Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and who will bring him near him. See, the people, once again like Cain, they had a problem with the holiness of God. They're rejecting God's terms of holiness. Who is special? Who wasn't? Who is in favor? And who wasn't? Um, God loves everybody just the same all the time. Everywhere, you know, it's a common refrain. And uh, everybody reserves the right to establish themselves in their own identity. This is the same heart of the rebels of old, rejecting God's terms of holiness. The one whom he chooses, Moses says, we, he will bring near. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow and on and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. Now notice, Moses takes their language and directs it towards them. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Our culture tells us, oh, a traditional marriage-believing Christian church, you have gone too far. That's hate speech, you are a bigot. And oh, maybe I should find ways to be more loving. Should that be our response? Well, God defines love. 
The object does not define love. A person might say, I find that offensive. But offense is defined by the law of God. You don't have the right to reset the terms of righteousness based on what offends you. Because God has spoken. And what he has said is the ultimate and enduring and immutable and changeable standard of what is offensive and what's not. And the rest is that radical subjectivism of Cain. So the right thing for the church to say is, no, you have gone too far. And you're on thin ice. You're living on borrowed time. And if you die in this state of rebellion, you'll be swallowed straight to hell, just like the followers of Korah were swallowed into the heart of the earth. So there is this showdown that's shaping up. There's this contest of authority, if you will. And as the people have rejected God's terms of holiness, there's going to be a decisive reckoning. This happens in verses 28 and following. Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And kids, what happened next? You guys remember? So the followers of Korah, there's a, distinct, there's a discrimination in the camp. Moses gives instructions. If you stand with the Lord and my authority, what happened to you? The ground swallowed them up. Let's see. As soon as they were finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense. So this day of decisive reckoning could not be argued in the moment. It's a tragedy that, it's a tragedy that as time passes, we forget these stories and the weight that they bear, the gravity that the holiness of God demands, and that submission to Christ and how significant it is. This event happened. And it stands in Scripture as a monument for us to take as seriously as those who witnessed it on the day that it happened. So as we refresh ourselves about the consequences of Kor's rebellion, it ought to affect our souls. How should it affect us? Well, it should remind us what the holiness of the Lord demands. Our deference, our reverence, our worship, and our submission. Why? Because Jesus Christ, as demonstrated in that very act alone, is glorious, majestic, he alone has dominion and authority. This was a decisive reckoning, but there was also grace and mercy manifest on that day. For those who stood with the Lord and his word through his servant Moses, they were saved on that day. And do you know the sons of Korah were spared? Later, the sons of Korah himself, the Bible is clear to distinguish, they become worshipers of the Lord Almighty. In order for this to happen, this was a prototype of what Jesus said would come with the gospel. Sometimes a sword divides family. So mothers and fathers or uh, 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 children and parents are divided. Why? Because we must align with Christ and no lesser allegiance or relationship should be sacrificed on account of the holiness, uh, on account of the glory he deserves because he is holy and he is sovereign. He is Messiah and he is my savior. That sword 
of Choose You This Day, where you will stand, on the day when Korah's followers were swallowed, it cut right between him and his own sons. And his own sons were spared because they stood with Moses, the anointed one who was a picture of Christ to come, and were spared the judgment on that day of decisive reckoning. That day of decisive reckoning was just an image, just a picture. It teaches us of another one to come. There is a great judgment to come, the most decisive reckoning of all, where all mankind will stand. And that sword that divides will be there too, but it will be too late to repent. So the message for those who have not repented in the hearing of this gospel, or your message, saints, to go and tell on the mountain, is to take seriously the holiness of the Lord. And to don't compromise or soft pedal the truth of the gospel of what that holiness demands. Because there is a day of decisive reckoning coming. Let's close and transition to communion with one final verse. Turn with me to Matthew 27. Years ago, it occurred to me, there's just uh, an amazing juxtaposition. Two things set beside one another to illustrate a difference. There's an amazing juxtaposition in the gospels with this moment of Korah's swallowing. And it happened the day that Jesus died. In Matthew 27, one of the most phenomenal miracles that accompanied the crucifixion takes place. And tragically, it's often overlooked in our own studies and confession. Nevertheless, it happened. Other things are happening too. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Better believe that that act of God and sovereignly tearing that symbol of separation through Christ between the sinner and a holy God is significant. More so, more than this, the earth shook and the rocks were split. Notice what else happened in verse 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And what did the centurion and others witness on that day? They witnessed a power so great that it could open the grave and release souls. And in this picture, you have a true either-or that is illustrated in Korah's rebellion versus Jesus' crucifixion. For those who don't trust Jesus to carry them through the grave, the ground, as it were, will open and swallow them up to Sheol. But for those who trust Jesus... Though they are laid in the grave, that ground will open, as it were, and they will be resurrected. Just like he defied the tomb, it couldn't keep him down. So we, in the second resurrection, resurrection, will be raised with him. And our bodies, our glorified bodies, will join his in praise and glory forevermore. And what an awesome day that will be, saints, where we, with deference and reverence and worship and submission, join at the marriage supper of the Lamb with all who are resurrected in Jesus Christ, to praise the Lamb that was slain forevermore. This is the hope that we have in Christ. So Jude makes his point quite poignantly, I would say, quite powerfully. He illustrates it in graphic terms according to prior revelation. And I pray that that would move our hearts to appreciate the truth of his gospel all the more. There is another way in our service that the gospel is illustrated. And that, of course, is at the table of the Lord. God in his sovereignty and grace has chosen more than words to illustrate the gospel. He has also chosen these elements. 
As we partake, if you are a believer today, in the cup, we're remembering what, kids? The juice reminds us of Jesus' blood. And as we partake of the, of the bread, we're reminded of what, kids? The body of Jesus. That is correct. And it is the power of these things that was pictured in Abel's sacrifice that allows us to defy the grave in our Lord and to have eternal life. It also covers the debt of our sin, pays for it on his, with his blood and his broken body rather than our own judgment. So the only way to escape the horror of that decisive reckoning is to realize Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has paid that price. If you believe that with all your heart, if you have submitted to the Christ, turned from your sin and trusted him, the communion table is open to you today. So I encourage you in a moment to come as we open uh, the, the table to you. In the meantime, let us close in prayer, or let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to obey you and to experience, Lord, the encouraging reality pictured in the elements of your communion table. I pray for all who partake today that you would etch more deeply upon their souls and that it would translate into their life the power and the glory of Jesus Christ in his authority to judge and also his mercy upon Calvary. Thank you that in him we have eternal life. Thank you that at this table we're reminded as tangibly as we eat this bread and drink this cup so our salvation is assured in Christ our Lord. We proclaim with Jude that he alone is glorious, majestic. He alone exercises ultimate dominion. He alone is our authority. He is the King of kings, our King of kings, Lord of lords, our Savior, our sovereign, our sacrifice. May he be glorified in this meal today. In Jesus' name, amen.